dry needling is you're using the same needle, only you're going in to restart the inflammation process. So the needle creates a micro trauma within the area. It's most commonly used to target trigger points within the muscle, which is bound up tissue that's developed adhesions that doesn't kind of move fluidly, doesn't have good blood flow. Today, we are joined by Dr. George Tate. George played college golf at Southern Illinois Carbondale before going on to Bellarmine University to get his doctorate in physical therapy. After that, George practiced physical therapy in clinics for a while before founding Golf Movement Systems, which focuses on physical therapy for golf and performance training for golfers. Perfect. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us, George. For people who don't know you and what you do, uh, you're a doctor of physical therapy. You work with golfers on, in a variety of facets. But before we get to that part of your story, let's start more from the beginning and just how you got into golf and how you got to playing golf. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks again for having me. So it all started, I mean, golf is really throughout my family. Um, got most of it, if not all of it, from my grandfather, even though my dad likes to take a little credit here and there. Grandparents owned a driving range growing up, and then also they went on to own like a little pup-up course. So there was no real daycare for me. Um, I just went to work with my dad and he dropped me off at uh, grandma and grandpa's business, which was the pup-up course. So once I was able to walk, I was able to putt. And then uh, from then on, um, just like every other kid, played a multiple multiple sports growing up till you realize that you ha have one that you want to focus on. So um, I think about eighth grade is when I solely stuck with golf, played golf all the way up until then. That was obviously where I excelled, uh, played a lot of, a lot of tournaments, everything I could. I, I just loved it. Looking back, it's, it's what I wanted to do. Um, grandfather lived on a nice public golf course in the area. So yeah, after that, as I got older, I ditched down just to focus on golf, played in high school, was successful, uh, didn't necessarily peak until senior year. So when it comes to scholarship opportunities and things like that, um, was luckily to grab one and went to play for Southern Illinois Carbondale uh, for four years. And that was that was a blast. So that kind of is the road on how I got there. You know, Was there point in time during your junior golf career when you started to take lessons or did you take lessons throughout your uh, golf career in general? I would say my grandpa is the one that taught me um, growing up. My my aunt, which is his daughter, played for uh, Florida State. Uh, excuse me, no, Florida. <laughs> she played for Florida and then um, transferred to Oklahoma State University. So my grandpa taught her growing up. So he's He's who taught me. Um, he unfortunately passed away in 2003. But then after that, I ironically went and got a few lessons from the guy who grew up playing golf with my grandpa. So he worked at a local golf range. So that's that's probably most of of what of where my learning came from. Um, I wouldn't say I was one who like had these academies where you show up every week or every other week and have you know organized practice so to speak. But yeah, that's where I got uh, most of my talent, I guess you could say. Later on, I really didn't have too many lessons. I worked with a guy down in Carbondale 
uh, for a little bit. He was kind of the swing guru at the course. It wasn't my golf coach per se, but just somebody to kind of bounce bounce ideas off of. You know how it is. You're on the range, videoing me. What are you thinking? Okay, what do you, you know, just kind of problem solve from there. So I would say not, definitely not lesson heavy, but wasn't afraid to pay somebody to give me a little tweak or just to get some somebody else's eyes on it. When it came to that high school golf, you said you started to play tournaments and you didn't really peak till your senior year. What was it about golf that brought you to want to play competitively and in tournaments compared to other sports that you had the options to play? I, I just, it was kind of the environment that I grew up in, honestly. So it was, it was what I was used to. Clearly saw that I was excelling in this sport more than others. So that's obviously attractive. When it comes to the competitiveness, I, I just liked that I had, well, I had a lot of the, a lot of the control. I didn't have to rely on, on other people. I, don't know, I, I just liked having, having more of the power and the ability to kind of do what I wanted to do, whether it's when I'm in competition or if I'm, if I'm practicing. So it's more, more, you know, I set my own pace, so to speak. So currently you're a doctor of physical therapy who helps athletes, uh, mostly golfers. And was this something that you knew you wanted to do going into college or did you kind of figure that out? Um, while being there or towards the end? So yeah, I started as a finance uh, finance major, finance and business. And after about one semester, I was like, eh, this is, excuse me, probably about one year. This wasn't really sparking my interest. So I changed to a kinesiology degree and got that major. Um, I wouldn't say that I knew I wanted to do this initially. Uh, in college, I played probably better my freshman and sophomore years and got worse um, as I got into junior and senior years. I would absolutely say I got burnt out, which is a thing in a lot of sports. But that that allowed me to kind of, you know, g- golf is your escape, so to speak, unless you're expected to perform, whether it's a scholarship, or whether you're trying to make it on Corn Fair or the PGA. So once you have expectations. Um, it's hard to to get get that out of your mindset and be able to perform without having any expectations. Because I feel like that's when golfers really flourish. But yeah, the whole kinesiology came back to the fact that golf became um, no longer an escape for me in college. So then I turned to lifting weights. So that's kind of where that um, that drive to go into kinesiology and kind of the science of of lifting and sports performance. So um, ended up getting a, a bachelor's degree in that, and then I was obviously, like I said, I was burnt out at the end of end of college. So I decided to take a year, um, get a few extra classes to be able to apply for physical therapy school, and then went back to that. And then about halfway through PT school. Um, obviously missed it and deep down knew that I would absolutely want to circle back around to working with golfers. So after, you know, circling back around, worked at a, so got my doctorate in physical therapy 2018, worked for several, um, several practices in the area from uh, anywhere from uh, the major hospital in the area to a sports performance clinic. Um, saw a little bit of everything, got my, got my feet wet. Um, got a great experience. And then after about two and a half, three years of experience in the corporate life, um, reached out and wanted to work with golfers. So 
I approached the, cl- the sports performance clinic that I was at at the time. They thought it was a conflict of interest that I would have to drive everybody back to the clinic and there would be no guarantee that I would be the one working with that particular patient, which is not what I necessarily wanted. And then COVID came across and because of the conversation we had, I was the first one that he let go, which from a business standpoint, I get was a blessing in disguise. So that forced me to kind of get some uh, PRN work part-time, work at some of the local hospitals, and then basically took a treatment table out to different golf courses, um, started developing a relationship, basically showed up. This is who I am. This is what I can do. How can I help you? So, and from there, did that for about a year at the same time that I was working. So I would basically lug a treatment table and anything else I had equipment-wise out to the golf course and work with them. And then eventually took the jump and that was this April. So I'm full-time physical therapist as well as a golf performance strength conditioning coach at the same time. So there's kind of two facets of, of what I do and some of them, some of it overlaps a little bit. That's awesome. That's a unique story as far as, you know, taking that challenge of losing your job and then uh, you already know kind of what niche you want to go to. And that wasn't an easy time, uh, especially early on to find something. So you made it work and you went out there uh, course to course, looking at treatment table, drumming up business, et cetera. And now you're at where you are, which is being able to treat players and help players out from a, a physical therapy perspective and a strength and conditioning perspective. Tell us a little bit about treating players from a physical therapy perspective. I come to you, I'm a golfer, and let's say I have an injury. What's the typical injury that you're seeing from people, uh, from golfers? And what are you doing to help treat that for them? And if there's not a specific one, you, uh, specific one that's normal, just pick one that uh, you've seen before and tell us a little bit how you're treating it and what that looks like in a golfer's life. Yeah. So, I mean, it's fairly common in backed by research that low back pain is the, the number one thing you're going to see. And that's, um, goes as well as throughout the population. I'd probably follow that by shoulder, back, shoulder, a little bit of hip, um, is probably the majority of, of what I see. But I would say from a, from a golf perspective, it all depends on, I kind of like to uncover, um, the history of the injury or what's going on or, you know, why are you here? I always ask that. And what do you want to get out of this experience? So, um, I start there and then I kind of backtrack. Okay. How long has this been going on? You know, what irritates it? I try to get to the root of the problem. And then mm-hmm. I always ask, okay, what have you done? Have you done anything for this before? Cause a lot of times I don't want to beat a dead horse and take somebody through something that's already, already, you know, they've already tried and it clearly didn't, didn't change their situation. So I would say it's, you see a lot online and social media about low back pain fixes, um, shoulder fixes, and it's honestly much more complex than it's actually interpreted across social media. So I always like to just get a great understanding of what each individual, what their individual belief of their situation is and what's going on. And I kind of reverse engineer it from there. But what it looks like, it's, it's very dependent on age, uh, symptom irritability, structurally what's going on, what they expect. You know, is this somebody who's 74 who's trying to avoid shoulder surgery and still wants to play golf? Or is this somebody who has a little bit of shoulder pain who plays on the corn ferry? 
who wants to get rid of it. So um, kind of looking at their whole scope of ex- expectations and, and developing a plan around it. What are some of those common uh, treatments that you may see on social media that aren't going to necessarily fix your back pain? And what would be a, a better solution in most cases? Great question. So on social media, you, you see a lot of, okay, fix the low back tightness or like loose low back or low back pain. Then, um, I mean, there's five different treatment classifications based on like what the patient is experiencing. And then from there, you kind of have clinical prediction rules that fall into that classification of pain. And then you kind of go from there. I think largely some of the stuff that you do see on social media, it's it's not terrible. Like if you have a tight or a stiff back, most of the stuff will give you some relief. Um, is it going to change kind of what's giving you the problem or the pain or the result when you're doing yard work or if you're on the golf course, not necessarily. So it's, it's just like anything else, the more specific you can get with what's going on, um, the more specific you can get with how you help somebody get past what they're experiencing and then teach them how to manage it themselves um, after initially. But um, as a physical therapist, that's where I tie in because I love the fact that I could do other things to kind of get them out of the pain and then transition them to the performance side of things. So that's what I love about what I do because I can help them get out of pain, have a better understanding of what's going on, educate them on how to manage this long term. If we can't get 100%, things to avoid. Um, A lot of people have, you know, I have an x-ray in my back. They said my back is a mess. Well, that's simply not always the case. So just making sure people have a good understanding of, of where they're at in what to prioritize moving forward. So one of the things we talk a lot about on this podcast is not necessarily new school stuff, but essentially saying a lot of the things that, you know, we learned as kids weren't wrong, but were flawed maybe in the direction that they tried to solve things. So for example, if you're injured, the first thing that uh, we learned as kids uh, was rice, uh, rest, ice, compression, elevation, and uh, that fixes the problem. And when, I know at least in basketball, when it comes to a lot of those injuries, it's been found. And I've noticed in my own life applying these that uh, like those applying rice can actually make uh, an injury work or injury worse. Uh, For example, with a sprained ankle, assuming it's not, not anything too bad. Like you need to be able to keep that tendon moving. You need to be able to keep the muscles firing and you need to work through range of motion in pain. And that idea of Working through range of motion doesn't just apply to basketball. We've talked with Mike Carroll some, uh, who does fitness, and one of the things that we've talked about before is working through ranges of motion, like where you're injured, and specifically uh, if I'm injured. So if, a true true story: my right shoulder, I have an injury on the top of it. I don't know what it is. It's been this way for three months or so. I used to I used to be able to do like ring dips. I used to do ring dips a lot. If you're familiar with that, just regular dips, but from hanging rings. And then uh, I got to a point where I was able to throw 45 pounds on and hold that up between my legs and do ring dips. And now I can't even do. It. I don't know what happened. There wasn't a singular incident, but what I what happened essentially is now I can't even do like regular dips where I push that upper range of motion right here 
with my full body weight. I have to take, I actually have to take weight off and let my feet hit the ground. And so one of the things that I have started doing since that happened was get, find that, find that injury, find that range of motion, and then working through that range of motion with enough stimulus that I'm growing muscles there and hopefully healing things in that area, but all, but not so much that I'm damaging anything severely or that's already there. So that's a long-winded question or a long-winded backstory. But the question that that goes to is, is that something that you've seen in your own practice? Is something you apply in your practice? Or is there something else you recommend for people who have injuries? If they're, have, if they're supposed to have a rule of thumb, should they be just resting, icing, compressing, elevating? Or is there something else they should be doing? It depends on a lot of things. Largely, if you see the rice principle, you're looking at swollen ankles, swollen wrists. You're you have inflammation, whether it's fluid, swelling, anything. You're using the ice to a numb the pain so you don't feel it, and b to get the swelling down. You want to control the swelling so you can take whatever body part it is through a range of motion. So, like if anybody has a swollen knee or ankle, if there's fluid within the joint, it's going to be harder to move. There's going to be a lot of pressure. So you're not going to be able to work through the full range of motion as you would normally if there wasn't a whole bunch of fluid within the joint. So I don't often, unless it's an acute injury, I really don't tell people to ice. It also can impact the good chemical mediators that are coming to to the area to help jumpstart the healing process. So there's actually, when looking at ice and compression, um, compression is is better just by itself than ice is, given the certain situation. So the compression is obviously getting the fluid out of there, allowing you to kind of work through the range of motion. But I mean, if you blow out your your knee, you're gonna want to not gonna want to feel it until you have the situation kind of taken care of. So um, it it's largely dependent on what what all's going on. But most of the time, if you look at research within rehab, mo- the phrase "motion is lotion" is largely applied. So I tell people, I get a lot of messages on Instagram, a lot of calls without me ever being able to kind of assess that person's situation. So generally answering questions, but most of the time, like work within your pain-free range and then what you can tolerate. So that's, um, again, it would depend on some of the situations here. That's not kind of an umbrella statement, but I mean, low back pain, a lot of people take, take days off and the that's probably the worst thing you could do um, outside of just lifting with mainly using your back, but you want to keep moving. You want to go on walks. You don't want to sit still for long periods of time. You want to avoid irritating positions. Um, Usually there's a positional preference with low back pain and working away from that. So it it largely depends on kind of what area of the body you're, you're looking through. And we can talk about your shoulder sometime. That could be a whole nother episode. Perfect. There's that's one of my favorite segments is free advice for the podcast host. So that sounds great. There um, you go. But you do you do physical therapy, but uh, beyond physical therapy, you said you also do strength and conditioning. What are you working on your golfers with as far as strength and conditioning? And what's the general age of the golfers that you're working with? I see just about everybody. So little guys from the age of twelve to fifteen, then solid high school group. Um, solid high school, uh, solid college, several corn fairy guys, a lot of guys that just want to be really mm-hmm. good at the club, a lot of older individuals that they still want to be good. Uh, they have a money game every Wednesday and 
Friday and want to be able to compete. So can't blame them. Um, so it, it changes. I would say largely depends on the time of year and the season that you're going through with, with any of them. So whether it's, you know, working on their strength and stability versus speed and power versus mobility. So all this kind of changes based on how old they are, um, their back, their physical background, whether they, you know, somebody that's played every sport and is in high school wanting to focus on golf, or if it's a golfer who's only ever played golf and has no other, you know, stimulus from any other athletic activity for athletic development. So I, I, I see, I see it all. So, it, and that's what makes it fun. So, and when building programs for your golfers, what specifically have you noticed about uh, golfers relative to other athletes, or is there anything you've noticed? There's a lot of mobility and flexibility. Everybody always talks about that. And that is a priority, especially when it comes to, to avoiding injury. But I think too many, I've seen a lot of golfers that are between the age of 25 and 65 that think that mobility and flexibility is going to solve their problems when it comes to pain or stiffness that they're experiencing and they're just not loading their system. Um, I've had several people that come in and they just, they're stretching all the time. Like they're stretching, like I get them on the table and I was like, this position might feel tight to you, but this is, this is normal. You have plenty of anatomical motion available when it, you know, with this movement, whether that's the hip or the shoulder. And then I, you know, educate them on like why, okay, if you've been doing this for how long and it's not really changing. And then I want to take that away from them and have them focus on something else for a little bit. And they're kind of a little timid up front, but that's probably the one thing, you're not saying you don't do any mobility or flexibility stuff in general, but people don't want to focus on laying down, you know, the small stabilizing muscles, the movement patterns. A lot of people want to just focus on mobility. I think if more people focus on strength and I'm saying, I'm not saying you have to lift a lot of weight, but just, I think you would have a better better outcome once you got around to in season you wouldn't have to work as hard to maintain what you put on in the off season you'd be less injury prone you'd feel better whether you're walking um, you'd be able to play more golf you'd be able to practice more working on mobility obviously you have to have it um, especially if you're trying to make changes with movement patterns whether that's in the gym or within your swing um, that's a big part but once you have that new motion you have to be able to be able to keep those positions um, and have the strength to tolerate that position with, with the rotational movement for hundreds, if not thousands of reps a day. That's one thing that I see kind of mobility and flexibility put on a pedestal a little bit more than I think it should be, but that could just be me. I like what you said about in-season training and how, you know, if you focus on strength uh, more so than mobility, then you won't have to train as much in season. And that was kind of one of the things that Mike Carroll was talking about is he said that one of the most important things for his that he tries to instill in his players is that you have to train during tournament weeks and if you don't train during tournament weeks then you'll just always be playing catch up on that one um, off week that you may get what are some of the ways that you develop a training plan for say your corn fairy players who are going to be on the road for 10 straight weeks yeah great great question uh, it's just a volume and intensity game when it comes to that, 
I always go back to everybody is different. Everybody has their own formula based on what they feel during, before, after a round, what they're trying to achieve in their golf swing. Um, so they have a, a set routine when it comes to, you know, getting loose, getting ready to play. Um, I would say that's, that's kind of where I start. Make sure they have a good foundation. Okay. I wake up, I'm playing golf today. What do I do? Um, okay, go through this routine, depending on the tee time, you can go for like a light jog, but don't do nothing. So all these pros are getting in a workout before they tee off. Um, so I think making sure that my players are doing the same. So that way they can simulate tournament play as much as they can during their practice rounds, making sure they're doing that when they're practicing. So when they go to a tournament and they you know, get a light workout before they play, their body is used to it. So they know what to expect. So that's a little bit, I always make sure everybody has their own foundation to do. If it's a week of a tournament and they're on the road, um, a little bit more, just make sure we're feeling good, make sure we're resting, eating good, nutrition, hydration, all that good stuff. And then when they come back, they, they kind of pick off, pick up right where they left off um, as far as intensity and volume. So intensity a little bit lower, you know, not necessarily looking to make gains, but making sure we're keeping good movement patterns, things like that. One of the questions I was interested in is I know that a lot of times uh, people get people get injuries for various reasons, but at least at my age, I'm 27. And one of the things I commonly see are guys who end up with what I'll call the injury. Um, and the injury is the injury that tells the guy, hey, you're kind of too old to uh keep acting like a kid or keep playing like a kid. Most of the time it's like, from what I've seen, it's an ACL here an MCL there and Achilles, something like that. And the cause of the injury a lot of times is from what I've learned and from what it seems is that it's from people going, uh, you know, at our stage of life, you know, you're probably, you're working behind a desk, you're doing something, but you're not doing something where you're loading these muscles a lot. You're, or at least like where you're not working on, loading the muscles, loading the tendon, et cetera, for, um, fast movements, et cetera. So you get out there on a basketball court, you get there out there on a tennis court and you make a turn that one, your, your body isn't used to. And then also maybe neurologically, you're not as coordinated as you used to be from making that movement over. And so then you have this injury and you end up with the injury for golfers. That type of injury doesn't happen a lot. It seems, it seems like it's more overuse injuries or fail, failure of the system, what do you try to do to address those overuse injuries and to make sure that your golfers are as protected as possible from overuse injuries? When it comes to protecting them from overuse injuries, I mean, you look at the literature, you know, girls more prone to wrist injuries with golf, you know, back and shoulder for guys, as well as girls, but not, not as much of a priority. The main thing always comes back to make sure they have a good understanding of, of why, um, why it's happening. For instance, with the girl, you know, okay, it's cold. Well, I've been hitting off mats indoors. You know, the compression force is so much more than having the club being able to go into a divot, especially late summer grounds, harder, more compression forces, um, up the, up the chain starting from the club all the way up to the shoulder. So kind of knowing what, you know, how to be aware of the volume that you're putting on, whether that's, you know, breaking up practices throughout the day, um, going short game, driver making it uh, a little bit more mixed up, which is also good for practice in general. But also the, you know, you see a lot of these guys are lifting a, a not 
heavy, but a decent amount of weight during the season. Um, they're keeping their nervous neuromuscular system primed to to be able to tolerate a fast twitch movement. I think that's important. And I think that's also uh, should be a priority in the off-season training, especially with I me mean, starting from high school. Um, as soon as you start to grow quickly, you want to be training quickly. And then you also want to be make sure you're you're putting on a good amount of muscle and focusing on strength when, when your hormones are starting to pink, when you're starting to grow fast. So making sure that they are still taxing their nervous system um, and working the appropriate movement patterns to, to give them the best chance once they get out there so they don't have to worry about it. But yeah, I would say the, the definite, definite thing is it's all low, it's low back pain. That's what it is. And addressing um, above and below that, the hips and the thoracic spine, um, making sure that whole those two systems on on above and below the lumbar spine is um is going to be your best bet. Making sure you kind of address everything as a, as a whole system. Something that I'm sure everybody that comes to you is looking for is more speed. Everybody could use more swing speed, or at least they say they they could. What are some of the things that you do to help players increase their swing speed, and does that change by age of player? Yeah, so it definitely changes uh, by age of player. If you're looking at somebody um, real young, 12, 12 to 14, you just want to be training speed, solely speed. You don't even necessarily want to be lifting a whole bunch. But if you're lifting, you could have a little bit of a load, but you want to make sure they're they're moving as quickly as they can. And then after that, you would transition to – and I wouldn't necessarily do any speed-specific training at that age. I always like a good – foundation of a little bit of muscle to be able to t- tolerate the the quickness that you're that you're challenging with your neuromuscular system so there's there's a lot of things you could do there's anywhere from using like the stack i mean there's a million different speed training devices kind of making sure you're using it correctly i think is the biggest thing whether you're doing it in season to stay where you are as far as like okay you've already gained some speed you know you 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 only go down to, I think, once a week it is with certain ones, not even that, to kind of keep the speed that you've maintained or, excuse me, gained in the off season. You know, making sure you're doing it outside and away from golf. You're not necessarily doing your speed training on the range before you play 18 on a Saturday, whether you're just a weekend warrior wanting to get quicker. But kind of separating the speed training is, okay, I'm training my nervous system to tolerate a faster movement, or I'm working on the mechanics of the movement that I'm trying to perfect. So kind of taking technique in a different part of the day or different day of the week versus speed training um, and making sure you're warming up. I think a lot of warmups, I don't think they tax the, uh, the nervous system as much as they should. Obviously we're working on the mobility beforehand, but I think there should be more planks, um, just isometric holds of the whole system to kind of get you primed it's just like you're doing a doing a deadlift only you're just doing this movement for speed and not necessarily strength so that's something that i definitely make sure everybody has a good understanding of that but also like if you're an older individual <clears throat> you might not get a lot of speed so how are we going to create speed okay we create more mobility so they have more time to create speed depending on what the swing looks like and what they're able to do physically at their age so so it's always a balance in a, in a mix and kind of finding out what's what's worth risking, whether it's a mechanical change or other ways to kind of 
you know, address the same situation. What are the good habits for someone right now who thinks about that older golfer and realizes, you know, someday I'm going to be that older golfer. Uh, I want to have speed, but I also want to make sure that I take care of my body in a way that helps me prevent injury. I'm not playing competitively. I'm just, I'm just trying to make sure that I stay healthy uh, from now until I'm 70, 80, et cetera, and that I can still move around. One, what are the good habits that you would recommend to that type of person? And two, when it comes to your workouts in general, are what are the type of lifts or workouts you're doing? Is it uh, Are they compound lifts? You're working mainly with dumbbells. Uh, what sort of training are you doing? Yeah, so I'll answer the second question uh, first. So types of training, um, again, it would depend on what type of season it is, whether it's now, whether we want to put down some, some muscle, especially depending on age. I mean, we're doing everything you would typically do in a conventional gym. You see a lot of golf specific stuff out there. And I think there's more to be gained doing just conventional lifts when it comes to developing strength in your body's ability to tolerate a repetitive rotational load at a high speed. Like there's much more to gain from that. When it comes back to the golf specific stuff, I think that is not, I don't see that in a way that I think I should based on what the research shows us and your ability to change a movement pattern. You know, some of it could be, you know, swing drills, stuff you do during your lesson to feel a certain position and then working on maintaining that position so you can achieve that position uh, during the swing and then speeding it up from there. So I don't necessarily agree with the whole golf specific workout. You know, if it's golf specific, you're, you're looking at, okay, maybe I want to focus on the thoracic spine and the hips to avoid injury at the lower back, be able to turn more. I can see that, but I think there's a lot more to gain from lowering the body a little bit more in a conventional way and then mixing in some of the golf specific stuff and drills when you're working on golf. But also, if you're working on pivot work, you could also do that at the gas station when you're waiting just to try to, you know, get the same feel um, that you're trying to attain. Um, once you feel it and get in a position at a slower speed, then you just work on, okay, how can I make this faster? And when it comes to your other question, how to, you know, what's a good habit for someone is, I think is just having a good solid foundation of of strength, stability, and mobility, having a routine, but also mixing it up because we all get bored. I think it's important to kind of mix it up from time to time. You know, the body adapts to change pretty, pretty readily. If you're doing the same weight and the same movements for years, I don't know how much you're gaining if you keep doing that other than, you know, maintaining a certain cardiovascular health. I'm sure there's tons of benefits from it, but if you're trying to move, it's either you're moving forwards or you're moving backwards. In my mind, so making sure you're you're taxing the system appropriately. Long term habits is just have fun with it. I think mix. Don't be afraid to mix it up. Try new things. Have a good understanding of what makes you feel good, what gets you playing your best golf, and and try to keep achieving that. Whether you're only playing once in the winter because the weather, or if you're able to to travel back and forth. Have you done any work as far as TPI or anything in that realm? I've done the TPI traditional certification. I did the power certification. Um, I did that. I'll be honest from more of a marketing standpoint. Mm -hmm. I think some of it's good. Some of it, I think 
could be better. Mm-hmm. I think there's not, they, they preach a lot about, you know, working as a team, but for certain situations, certain people, unless you're a pro, I don't know how realistic that is. Yeah. The amazing tool. Um, I think my doctorate overqualified me. I did learn from it, but took that route from more of a marketing standpoint, but also do um, credentials and dry needling. I've been doing that for two years. Um, that's some cool stuff. I have a extra training in uh, manual therapy. So ability to do mobilization and manipulation work. Yeah. So I've got a lot of tools. So I'm getting ready to do it. Uh, kind of go back to the golf realm and the biomechanical side of things moving forward. Ground force reactions is the new biggest thing. Mm-hmm. And what that looks like with people that don't move normally based on previous injuries or deficits within the system. So no, that's, that's perfect. I was interested about TPI just because uh, I thought I'd seen that on your bio and I knew that so that provides some tools to golfers, but you said something uh, interesting there, which was dry needling. Tell us a little bit more about that and how that's yeah. used. The dry needling, you take the monofilament. It's the same needle that acupuncturists use, only it's uh, we're using the same tool as them, only from a uh, for different reasons. So acupuncturists use it based on Eastern medicine. So you're needling somebody based on the the energy points or the meridians within the body. So for instance, like if you have foot pain, they may put a needle in your ear. So they're doing that based on the the energy points of their their medicine and what they're what they're trained in. Dry needling is you're using the same needle only you're going in to restart the inflammation process. So the needle creates a micro trauma within the area. It's most commonly used to target trigger points within the muscle, which is bound up tissue that's developed adhesions that doesn't kind of move fluidly, doesn't have good blood flow, um, hard to get oxygen and also healing agents um, for recovery. So with the needle, you go in and you basically cause a trauma to the area. And ideally you would want a twitch response. So, which is the muscle kind of teasing out kind of this balled up resting energy, so to speak. So I, I love it. I've been doing it for quite a while and it's I got trained in it because you can see an almost immediate effect. So I tell people that it's not going to make anything worse. Worst case, you're not really going to see a change. I, I do believe the, the more you've been doing this, you, you get better as you do it just based on your experience. I'm getting ready to do a lot of cool stuff with that based on, you know, you see all these people trying to, you know, do soft tissue work to loosen up joints or I have this knot I can't get to on my shoulder. It's and I can I can get to it with the needle directly at the muscle. Um, I also connect stem and electronical uh, stimulation to the muscle. With the low back pain, you also there's you know you're causing a micro trauma to the area for muscles that are that are painful, but also you see people that the deep stabilizing muscles of the spine aren't active they're so to speak dormant your your body doesn't recruit them with whether it's golf or everyday activities we we need along the spine to target the deep stabilizing muscles and we hook up the electrical stimulation to it and we can get the muscle to twitch so the the unit it's also is doing the same thing that your nerves nervous system would be doing but it's you're not doing it the the machine is so you can kind of retrain a muscle that's dormant to kind of wake it up and say hey you know you need to start start working and it's it's a good thing to do right before going into to movement or strength training. So usually see most benefits with that if it's combined with if it's combined with exercise, not just dry needling 
needling alone. So it's, it's another cool tool, excuse me, but I've, I've loved it. I see I've done it for a lot of different situations. Most common I'd say is shoulder golfer's elbow. It's great. Um, if anybody has elbow pain or shoulder pain, I would encourage them to find a practitioner wherever they are. Some states you can't dry needle California. I don't think you can. Florida just got their physical therapist, or I believe they just passed to be able to practice that as a physical therapist in their state. So if you have elbow or shoulder pain or, you know, as, as a golfer, I think dry needling is a great tool that if you could find somebody who's proficient in practicing that, I would encourage it. Beautiful. We appreciate the time. We know you have a hard stop coming up. So we'll ask the question that we ask everybody the last question of the podcast, which is, if you go back to yourself as a junior golfer, tell yourself just one thing, what would it be? Just believe in yourself. You know, don't, don't stop. If something's not working, change it. If you're, if you don't think a coach is, you know, if you don't think you're going anywhere with what you're doing, change it. If you don't think the coach is right for you, have a, have a conversation with the coach, whether that's a fitness professional or or an instructor or anybody that's helping you try to get to where you want to go. Don't be afraid to sit them down and be like, Hey, what we're doing, I don't think it's working. Is there another route? Would you recommend we approach it in a different way? I think people jump ship before having that conversation. You know, and I think, you know, you invest a lot working with certain people. Those people know kind of what you've gone through, how you got to where you are. So I think it's always worth to have that conversation, you know, see if there's something you need to change. So Outside of obviously working hard, you got to make sure you put in put in the work on your ends. Yeah, don't be afraid to change things up if you're not getting what you want and you're working hard. So beautiful. So, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you, ask you questions on social media, etc.? Um, Doctor George Tate on Instagram, Golf Movement Systems is me. That's probably the most direct communication to me. Um, I tell people to reach out all the time. You can send me a message. Um, I'll set up a call. Um, you can go to the website, golfmovementsystems.com. There's also a performance call on there that is an option if you have, you know, see if we're a right fit to work together. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, I want to be a resource because I think, you know, looking back, just like you guys, this could be a whole other episode too. But, you know, there's a lot of things that I wish I would have known back then that I, that I do now on how I would approach things and kind of, you know, systematically lay out how I want to get to where I want to get. So thanks for joining us today. Please do us a big favor and like and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts so we can help others learn how to play better tournament golf. You can find us online at thetournamentcode.com, on Instagram at thetournamentcode, and on Twitter at tournamentcode. As always, feel free to reach out to us at those places or email us at daniel at thetournamentcode.com and cooper at thetournamentcode.com. We hope you join us as we continue to dive deeper in what it takes to play elite tournament golf.